I'm John Duke Anthony with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations in Washington, D.C., nonprofit, non-governmental <clears throat> educational organization established in 1983. A vision is a relationship with America's Arab friends, Arab allies, Arab strategic partners uh, that is on a firmer foundation uh, than it has been, than at the moment it is, or will likely become in the future unless enough good people on both sides are working from generally the same page uh, with regard to a mutuality of benefit and a reciprocity of rewards as we are marching to the same drumbeat uh, on matters pertaining to security, stability, peace, and prosperity. Two S's and two P's. Uh, and these can be achieved not by accident or coincidence, not through a book, not through a lecture, not through a briefing, not through a video, uh, but again, through enough well-educated, well-trained, well-experienced, well-informed, well-insightful, knowledgeable, insightful, understanding and analytical, as well as policy-oriented individuals on both sides of this relationship. And who better to chair this particular session uh, than uh, Dr. Abdullah Babu? I wanted to congratulate uh, His Excellency on today being Oban's National Day. And one of our speakers uh, that you'll be introducing and interviewing uh, represented the United States uh, this uh, past year uh, uh, to offer direct personal condolences uh, to uh, Oman's government, its people, and the new Sultan uh, Said Haytham uh, bin Tariq uh, uh, Al Busayi. Uh, that individual, Mr. Tim Linda King, we'll hear from momentarily. But Abdullah Babu, uh, I mentioned playfully with him just a few minutes ago that he is in some ways to be likened to an Arab uh, academic uh, nomad. Uh, or in Arabic, it would be an Arab uh, modern day version of Ibn Battuta. Uh, and you'll understand here in a, in a moment. At the moment, he's a visiting professor in Japan at one of Japan's most uh, prestigious uh, universities, its School of International Liberal uh, Studies at uh, Waseda University in Tokyo. Uh, he's on leave, as it were, because he's a visiting professor there, and he remains the chair of the Gulf Studies uh, program at the University of Qatar in Doha. And I've been privileged to uh, be an advisor to that program. It's the only one in the world where an individual who wants to get her or his doctoral dissertation and PhD and Gulf studies uh, can obtain it at the University of Qatar all the way from the bachelor's, the master's, and the, uh, the PhD. Dr. Babu is the person who chairs and directs uh, this. Um, I first came to meet him uh, when he was the director at Cambridge University of the annual Gulf Research uh, Council 
meetings in uh, Cambridge. Uh, sometimes there are more than 400 uh, participants and people who deliver papers uh, to that conference. And there's none like it anywhere in the world. And it's all been brought together uh, by people like Abdullah Babu and uh, Abdulaziz Sabr. Uh, it's a chairman and founder uh, based in, in Jeddah, but it's previously also had offices in Dubai as well as uh, Geneva. Uh, Abdullah Babu uh, is himself, though, a native Obani uh, from the southernmost province of Dofar. Uh, without further ado, uh, let me it, uh, welcome uh, Dr. Abdullah Babu. We're delighted to have you with us once again, Abdullah. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. John Duke, for this uh, very elaborate and kind introduction. Uh, I don't know if I deserve all of that. I, I uh, consider myself as a lost soul, a lost academic, uh, trying to uh, understand the world. So that's why I travel. I actually must say that I'm no longer um, uh, the chair or the director of the Gulf Studies uh, in Qatar University. I left that several years ago, and since then I've moved on uh, to Singapore and now to, uh, to Japan. But thank you for that. Always a pleasure uh, to work with you and to work with the National Council. I thank you for the kind invitation to chair this very important um, panel or session uh, uh, within the National Council uh, annual uh, meeting, uh, annual conference. Uh, we uh, regret that we don't see you all in, in person uh, due to the pandemic, but hopefully we will uh, do so. As I said, I'm working at uh, uh, Waseda University in, in Japan, but I'm currently in Oman, hence I'm dressed in the traditional Omani clothes. And since also we are celebrating the National uh, Day of, uh, of Oman. I also, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, the panelists here, the participants, uh, excellencies, uh, and distinguished speakers uh, have been uh, handpicked, selected by the National Council to address a very, very important topic, which is the geopolitical dynamics of Arabia and the Gulf. Um, and I think for some very good reason, the organizers, uh, the uh, National Council decided that I should share rather than speak. Uh, because normally when I speak, I create a lot of uh, 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 issues that maybe doesn't uh, interest the people. So I will keep my remarks very, uh, very quiet and uh, very short. Uh, and basically to say that, you know, that the region uh, that is the Gulf and Arabia is, uh, uh, is, has always been uh, a turmoil region for one reason or the other. Since the British withdrawal, uh, in the 1970s until now, we've seen like four different wars plus other conflicts and, 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 and ongoing conflicts now that we are witnessing. Um, we are not short of, uh, you know, uh, uh, conflicts and rivalry and competition between the, the, the member states of the GCC or uh, the Arabian Peninsula or the whole of Arabia. Um, but uh, at the same time, this remains to be one of the most stable regions uh, within uh, the Middle East. And it has enjoyed a very, very strong relationship with the United States. 
uh, and long may it endure. Um, and um, for that, we are going to, um, you know, I, I'm going to end like my uh, very quick remarks, if, if you like, to just uh, say that we have, uh, uh, we have here uh, speakers, uh, distinguished speakers, excellencies who will shed lights and, in, and give them their, and give us their insights on, on the region and the geopolitics uh, of the region. Um, and we, before we start, I just want to say that I'll ask each uh, speaker that uh, they uh, try and stick to 10 minutes and maybe say one or two things at the end that is policy related. And while you're not speaking, uh, I would also welcome uh, you uh, muting uh, yourself uh, and then unmute yourself when you want to speak. Um, and then I also ask the attendants if uh, and when they feel like they want to ask a question, please do post the questions uh, on the uh, on the website or on the, uh, the platform that you are on. And um, we'll try and, and accommodate as much as we can of those questions and address them. Uh, and, and you can also ask to address them to a particular speaker or to all the speakers. Without much ado, I just want to start with uh, welcoming His Excellency Dr. Muhammad Al-Hassan as uh, the first speaker. He is the uh, Sultanate of Oman Ambassador to the United Nations and a former Omani Minister, uh, uh, a former Oman Ministry of Foreign Affairs Acting Under Secretary for Diplomatic Affairs. And he was also a former Ambassador of Oman to Russia. Uh, his Excellency Dr. Hassan is speaking from New York, I believe, and uh, he will give us his uh, thoughts and insights uh, uh, about the topic uh, under question. Your Excellency, the floor is yours, and then we'll move on to introduce the others. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, I would like to start by thanking you all for the kind words and greetings extended to Oman on its 50th anniversary of the National Day, which is uh, today, the 18th of November. I really don't have the privilege as Dr. Baboud uh, to wear my national costume since I'm in New York. And after this uh, participation in this meeting, I have other events to attend to. That's why I'm wearing my normal New York attire. Uh, I, would I would also like to thank Dr. Anthony for, and his team for the perseverance and the dedications despite the odds to make this year's conference, the 29th version, possible and hopefully outstanding. Uh, the most important question, I believe, that should be addressed, not only during this uh, conference, but also throughout the Middle East. How do we want to see our children and grandchildren 30 or 50 years from today? That is, in my opinion, the overarching question that ought to be addressed, providing an answer or answers to this question. I believe will take us to a new reality 
and a roadmap to where we want to be and how to go about it. If we are to solicit the views of the people of the Middle East today regarding the conditions in which they live in, probably the majority will cast negative opinions, with the exception of course of few, about the prevailing political and socio-economic conditions. The situation throughout the Middle East ain't that crazy. War in Yemen, war in Libya, war in Syria, security challenges facing Iraq, facing Lebanon, and many others. Iran is being pushed extremely into isolation. Somalia is almost absent from the radar of the international community. Peace is the missing link in the talks between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Recent normalization of relationship between Israel and some of the Arab countries is a step forward towards peace. However, it should not be viewed as a substitute for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Peace is incomplete without a resolution of the Palestinian question. We in Oman believe in the two-state solution, living side by side in peace and security. Peace that will, not, that will take into account the legitimate aspirations of the Palestinian people for an independent state and those of Israel to live in peace and security not only with the state of Palestine but with the region at large. In a nutshell, the situation in the Middle East is not very promising. It is therefore important for us to ask ourselves how we can get out of this dilemma. The answer to this question lies in the recognition of certain facts and essential tools and for a higher future and more secured Middle East. Among those I will list few. First, it is important to act in accordance with international law and the need to conduct relations on, based on the rule of law and avoid resorting to the use of force or coercive measures as a convenient mean to resolve differences. Number two, it is also important to recognize the need for the other side to live and to flourish. Denying others rights for security, dignity, and statehood and growth is a short-sighted view and will never take the Middle East to a brighter future. Number three, we also must recognize that we control our destiny. Our future is in our hands. And we should not blame others for our own shortcomings and failures. The fourth point, investing in peace is better than investing in war and conflict. Diplomacy is the tool that is out there to resolve differences. And my final and last point on this aspect, it is important to listen to the voices of the youth. They have an important message 
about their own future. Having said this, I believe it is equally important to note that when talking about the Middle East and the Gulf region, we should not ignore the legitimate partners in the region. And therefore, it is the view of us, at least the Omanis, that excluding Iran or Iraq or Yemen from any future security arrangements or any future economic standings is not the right way forward. During last year's conference, I did speak about some of the prevailing myths uh, and allow me to repeat some of those, for I believe they are worth repeating. The first, Yemen is a liability. That is a myth and absolutely not true. I believe no security arrangement in the region is complete and solid without Yemen being part of it. My second point, attacking Iranian interest in Iraq hurts Iran. That is a myth. That is absolutely and totally untrue. Not only it is a violation of Iraqi sovereignty and territorial integrity, but it hurts first and foremost the Iraqi people and weakens the Iraqi statehood. Settling differences with Iran should not be on the expenses of the Iraqis. My third point, isolating Iran is good policy. That's a myth. It is not true. In fact, it is the total opposite. Isolation of Iran's policy is a doomed policy. My fourth point, peace and security can be achieved through the sounds of guns. That is a myth. Whereas peace can be sustainable only through understanding and everyone having stake in it. Someone's security cannot be built on others' insecurity. My fifth point, and please, Dr. Barwood, if I am exceeding my 10 minutes allotted time to stop me. My fifth point, the Middle East is not ready for peace. That is also a myth. The Middle East is in dire need for visionary leaders who think beyond the electoral boxes and winning the next election. My last point of myth, therefore, I believe there is so much room for the United States administration and for the leaders in the region to walk towards a brighter Gulf and a brighter Arab world. Let me now turn my attention to the relationship between the United States and the Middle East. Overall, I believe uh, the United States remain a very close partner to the Middle East. Yes, sometimes we do not see eye to eye on all things. However, the relationship is healthy, solid, and enduring. The United States remains a solid partner for many countries of the region. It is important to note that this relationship is mutual with reciprocal interest. The Middle East is not a burden in the United States and vice versa. We think, and this is my concluding remarks, and this is in accordance with what uh, Dr. Barboud 
has asked us to do to create some policy guidelines. I believe what is important is to stop the war in Yemen immediately because what is at stake is one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in accordance with the words of the Secretary General of the United Nations. The situation inside Yemen is very grim and dire. Number two, I believe in the importance for peace for the establishment of a Palestinian state, leaving the Palestinians without any hope at the end of the tunnel, without any light of the, at the end of the tunnel, is not the right policy. The Palestinians, in their millions, inside and outside, they deserve a state that is legitimate, independent, that's living side by side with Israel. This is in the best interest, not only of the region, but also in the best interest of Israel itself. Uh, having said this, let me just conclude by saying how grateful I am to have taken part in this year's uh, conference, and I'm so honored to be amongst the participant uh, in this panel. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Barbud. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anthony. Thank you very much, uh, Your Your Excellency, uh, for those very uh, precise uh points that you have raised and we have asked for one or two policy points uh, i guess i think you have given us more than two one or two uh very important points that you have raised here and i'm sure other speakers will maybe want to elaborate on that or um uh, discuss them in one way or the other or maybe we can discuss some of that in the q a session um now, we would like to move on to the next speaker. And here we have uh, Mr. Uh, Timothy uh, Lenderking, who is the US Department of State Bureau of uh, Near East Affairs, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Arabian Gulf Affairs. He, he was also the former US Department of State Deputy Chief of Mission at the US Embassy in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. He just came from the region uh, someone who knows the region more than the people in the region themselves. Uh, Tim, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Abdullah and, and uh, John Duke and the rest of the, the great panelists who are assembled here and, and for the opportunity to talk with you uh, this morning about uh, issues that are very near and dear to my heart and certainly my, my work and that of my colleagues at the Department of State. Um, and with great uh, respect for what uh, Ambassador Hassan has just uh, shared with us with his views. Um, I, I would, you know, take, I think, as my starting point uh, that <clears throat> obviously we're going through a transition uh, back here. Um, it seems to me that one of the key, key principles, though, for, for the United States has to be um, the US maintaining strong engagement with the region. And it's not just the Gulf, but indeed the Middle East. What I've seen over 15, 20 years of working on the Middle East is, while we don't get things perfectly, we don't always get it right, we are generally trying to do the right thing. And um, our, our engagement, I think, in the Middle East um, yields better results when we as a country are unified in our messages, and in our engagement and our commitment um, and are clear with our partners about what our intentions are. Um, 
I, I would say that, that, you know, looking forward over the next couple of years, there will probably be, um, you've heard from our uh, special envoy to Iran, Elliot Abrams, who's just been in the region, our desire for negotiations with Iran. I do think that that is important, that we will get at the kinds of, of issues that Ambassador Al-Hassan talks about if we are able to talk directly with the Iranians. Of course, that has been uh, a hallmark, I think, even of this administration, which has sought numerous opportunities to talk to the Iranians, but that basically has not happened in any sort of consistent manner other than on a couple of issues such as prison releases, which are you know, clearly very important. But if we're going to be able to defuse some of the tensions and move beyond this current state, I do think that it's important, bearing in mind the great um, you know, mediation work and messaging that, that has been done by our Gulf partners at various times for the United States and Iran to talk directly. I think that is going to be important. I hope that we can get there on terms that we can both agree on. Um, you know, related to that, I would agree that uh, the Yemen conflict is something that we have to take up uh, and continue to take up in great earnest. It is one of the areas where, of course, the United States views uh, Iranian influence as growing. That's not the only benchmark of the conflict, however. We do see that there is a, a, a very seriously deteriorating humanitarian situation. And it gives us uh, great concern, I think, uh, in terms of our, our commitment to the Yemeni people that we can't simply stand back and watch this situation continue to deteriorate before our very eyes. So I do think that going forward, the kind of engagement that we do in Yemen will be very important. Uh, we've, we've remained very solidly supportive of the special envoy, Martin Griffiths, and you know very much salute and appreciate the work that he's done. We've enjoyed tremendous contacts and team building with the entire UN apparatus and with the many NGOs, I think, that are operating in Yemen. And that helps provide us a picture. But what we, what we need to see, I think, is, is the gradual decrease of outside engagement, the more outside parties that we see in Yemen, which will be attractive the more that the conflict goes on, the more we need to see those outside parties begin to wind down their presence. I mentioned Iran first and foremost, because I don't believe that Iran's engagement in Yemen is helpful at all. I, what we've seen is they have tended to train, arm, and supply the, the Houthi militia, which by the way, has a legitimate role to play in Yemen. Let's be clear that no one, nobody seeks to eradicate the Houthis. Um, part of the reason that they are as strong in, in Yemen as they are is because they faced grievances that, that, uh, that are legitimate and those pertain to their um, peripheralization and marginalization over time. And I think we as Americans ought to be sympathetic with that. What we shouldn't be sympathetic to are the uh, attacks on civilians, uh, both inside Yemen and inside the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, key ally, um, and the, what we feel is a burgeoning relationship with the IRGC in particular. That to us cannot be for the good either of the region or of Yemen. So certainly believe that um, 
we're going to have to over this uh, near-term period, if we're going to get to a solution, um, continue to work very strongly with our Omani friends, Saudi friends in particular, um, to see if we can leverage things in a way that put us on a solid peace track and that minimize the, the damage to the uh, uh, to the humanitarian situation. We have been delighted turning to a couple of areas to see the normalization of some states with Israel. That is a major, uh, major change and a major improvement. Um, we'd like to see more states do that. We do believe that uh, all the countries of the Middle East have an opportunity to benefit from a relationship with Israel because of what Israel brings to the table. Um, and I, I don't think anybody wants to see this done over the, over the backs of the Palestinians. And I think in the period going forward, let's work constructively and energetically on ensuring that the Palestinians have a place at the table. Um, if there's going to be a two-state two solution or whatever formula, it certainly involves engagement with the Palestinians. And uh, uh, a number of, number of our partners in the region, I think, would support that, and we need to see that. At the same time, delighted to see that you know, today, the Bahrainis have traveled to Israel uh, on the inaugural flight of Gulf Air. They'll have a trilateral meeting with Secretary Pompeo, who's in Israel. And this kind of breaking down of barriers seems to open up tremendous opportunities for the countries themselves. And I know having just come back from Bahrain and Kuwait yesterday, in fact, that uh, that the leadership of Kuwait and Bahrain in particular are eager to see benefits that come, uh, you know, come from this normalization. That it's important for, as what Ambassador Al Hassan says, for the youth of the region to see that there can be benefit for the youth in particular, and that we can all see that there are advantages to this uh, burgeoning relationship. So I think that's tremendous. At the same time, you know, I must admit I've been struck. How is it that the countries of uh, the Arab countries of the region can make peace with Israel more readily than they can resolve the Gulf Rift with Qatar? Uh, something that's that's very striking to me. Qatar is a, is an Arab brother. It is a, a neighboring country to the Gulf, the other Gulf countries. Um, it also has legitimate aspirations and needs in the region. And we do really strongly think that it's beyond time for the Gulf Rift to be healed and for Qatar to be brought back into the fold. That the, the Gulf countries do not benefit uh, ultimately uh, from uh, a rift within the Arab body politic in the Gulf, and nor does it certainly benefit US interests to see this uh, rift perpetuated. Not only because um, it, it seems to create daylight amongst the Gulf countries for Iran to exploit, but because US interests, I think, rest very strongly on a united Gulf. And uh, that doesn't mean that the Gulf countries aren't gonna have differences. Of course they will. They're all distinct, separate countries. They have their own leaderships. They have their own interests, their own individual characteristics. But we do think, and I think this transcends a Republican or a Democrat administration in Washington, that the rift is not it has uh, is not productive and it's not conducive to the kind of future that we all want to see, to the betterment of the economies of the region, 
and the ability to collaborate on the joint challenges that lie ahead. And again, it's not just the Iranian challenge. It is economic challenges, it is COVID, it is maritime uh, security and economic development for the peoples of the region. So let us look toward a day when the rift can be resolved fairly soon and that um, the issues that, that uh, underline the rift can, can be dealt with in, in a direct fashion. So um, I, I would just close uh, saying that I, I believe that American leadership and engagement is very important for the region's prosperity. And in order for it to be successful, we need to be smart policymakers, smart diplomats, understand the nuances, understand the differences uh, that, the, that each individual country brings to the table, but unite in common uh, per pursuit of common goals. So I think that um, you know our, our advice uh, going forward with the with either administration is to maintain that strong American engagement, listen to the partners, and together I think um, we can uh, we can prosper. I would also say, uh, just to conclude, that the role that Saudi Arabia plays is very important to the region, and so uh, we we cannot I think afford to marginalize peripheralize uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And, and, and going forward, I think that our engagement with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia will need to remain strong and will remain to make, uh, will need to remain committed. I'm delighted and very pleased to be part of several strategic dialogues that we've opened recently, including with Saudi Arabia. We have a Kuwait strategic dialogue underway. Uh, right now, we'll have the foreign minister of Kuwait visiting Washington next week, and we very much look forward to his arrival. We've, we've launched a, a strategic dialogue with the UAE as well, and we hope to do so with the other countries. These give us a mechanism to address the strong areas of convergence and deal with divergences where they do exist. And uh, we, we were pleased to welcome the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia here just three weeks ago, we have huge interests in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its stability, and we look forward to continuing to develop those as we go forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Tim, for uh, those very important points. It's, um, I think there are a lot of uh, agreements uh, between you and His Excellency on uh, the future of the region and the uh, aspiration of the youth and how to have peace uh, in the region and of course in the collaboration between uh, uh, the United States and the countries in, in the region uh, which is of course of utmost importance and I think it is it is something that is uh, needed and uh, uh, and hopefully it's something that we will all on both sides uh, of this equation will 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 work on because peace and stability is important for, for us and it's important for our allies. And, uh, and it's all interlinked in, in one way uh, or the other. So thank you for those illuminating points. Really appreciate uh, uh, also keeping to the time. Um, now, if you like, we will move on to the next speaker. And uh, the next speaker is Dr. Uh, John Duke Anthony and I, I'm humbled to uh, introduce you, uh, sir. Uh, um, 
Of course, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say, but uh, I'll just basically make it very brief. Everybody knows uh, uh, Dr. John Duke, uh, not only in the United States, but in the region. Um, he, is, he is someone who uh, uh, lived in the region, studied in the region, speaks the language, understand the culture more than anybody else. Uh, it's always a privilege to talk to him about the history uh, of the region, about the uh, previous uh, rulers and, and uh, leaders that he has met and discussed with them. A number of issues attended most of the GCC uh, summits. Um, um, I can go on, but uh, you know, for uh, the sake of time, I would just say that uh, Dr. John, John Duke Anthony is the National Council on US-Arab Relations founding president and chief executive officer. And he is the person who brought all of this, brought all of us together and does it every year for the last, what, 49 years or so. Uh, so uh, Dr. John Duke, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you so much, um, uh, Abdullah. And you use the word uh, humility, but the humility is, is on my side. Uh, let no one be mistaken that uh, while I focus on the region, a big piece of my head, my heart, my soul, my life's work, teaching, research, uh, publishing, and experience, has been uh, in uh, the Arab world. I, I'm an outsider, and people uh, must never uh, forget that an outsider uh, will never be able to fully grasp the realities and the dynamics and be able to provide relevant, adequate sources of information and insight and knowledge and understanding and uh, empathy, as well as education and experience all of which are necessary for clear bonded analysis. Uh, Tim uh, Linda King uh, hit the nail on the head when he said that we are more likely to succeed. Certainly the atmosphere will be more receptive and the moment more propitious uh, as measured by the degree to which we're unified in our positions, in our policies, in our actions, in our attitudes on the large issues of war and peace and security and stability and energy and economic uh, development as well as sound political objectives and relations between and amongst us. These are not uh, easy to attain, uh, but the journey uh, to uh, accomplish them is its own very viable, necessary, indeed arguably vital a requirement uh, for an improved uh, relationship between our two, our two peoples. Uh, with regard to uh, anything that I as an outsider uh, could offer, uh, I would like for people to ponder the implications of the following and their implications for their bearing on how to improve America's uh, relations with these six vitally important uh, countries. Um, uh, Abdullah, you were correct in pointing out how the region in the macro sense is, is laced with contention 
and uh, uh, dynamism and uh, two kinds of oil, uh, turmoil and that other kind uh, that uh, make it uh, a challenge for any of us and all of us to try to make sense out of. And I would posit that the GCC uh, countries and as an institution have been invaluable uh, since its inception uh, to that which the United States and the outside world has sought to achieve. And the outside world has sought to achieve, first and foremost, the security of this region. Secondly, its stability, which you cannot have over a sustained period of time without security. And thirdly, the prospects for peace that sound solid, uh, mutually beneficial security and stability uh, can foster and serve as a foundation for. And for a future generation, that which we would leave to those who come behind, as uh, Ambassador Mohammed Al Hassan mentioned, uh, our children and our children's children. What will they inherit from us? I would submit that uh, the following four examples, role models, uh, that uh, the GCC countries and as an institution, and the United States, plus the friends, the allies, the partners of both uh, have been able to achieve. And one has to search uh, unduly at length uh, to find uh, the clarity of the following examples. One is what the GCC countries made possible in ending the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, which began in uh, December of uh, 1979 and uh, continued uh, for the better part of the uh, next decade. Uh, and ponder the fact that uh, Dr. Abdullah's uh, home country was the first to reach out to and join forces and hands with what became the United States Central Command. But at that time, it was known as the Joint Rapid Deployment Force and people used to joke about it and say, well, it's not so much joint as disjointed. And it's uh, not so much uh, fulfilling its task or even defining and agreeing on, on its task. And as to a force, well, let's be serious about this, uh, that their forces are embryonic. Uh, they do not necessarily share the same uh, technology or standards or methods uh, of, of, of measurement. Uh, these were sick jokes, sad jokes, and uh, jokes lacking empathy. On the American side in particular, we are empathy deficit. No one is, uh, to my knowledge, ever accused the United States in its actions, attitudes, policies, and positions towards this region and its peoples as being in an empathy surplus. So Afghanistan is one, and our cooperation there helped to drive the last nail in the coffin of the Red Army uh, in Afghanistan and the strength and power and regional as well as global influence of international and from a religious point of view, atheistic uh, communism. And uh, Dr. Aboud uh, comes from a region 
where these issues were dealt with face to face, not just in Afghanistan, but on his own territory in uh, Dofar, in the southernmost region of, uh, of the Sultanate of Oman, where for nine years uh, raged and waged uh, a revolutionary effort, uh, Marxist Leninist led in its second half uh, to try to topple. Uh, the existing governmental status quo in the region. So that's a, a big one. Uh, uh, second one was helping to end the Iran-Iraq war, which began the uh, end of September 1980 and uh, straight through to the ceasefire of August 18, 1988. Uh, those in the region are well aware, but those outside need to be aware and appreciative of the fact of how that war ended. It ended with Resolution 5.8 of the United Nations Security Council of July 15th, uh, 1987. Uh, noteworthy is that Iraq, then still led by Saddam Hussein, accepted it immediately, which called for a ceasefire. Iran took 13 months to uh, uh, accept it. And finally, the Iranian leadership said we would rather have drunk poison then accept this uh, ceasefire resolution. But how did that happen? Uh, it, the American flag uh, had to be put on the tankers and freighters uh, going to and from uh, Kuwait, which was the furthest inside of the Hormuz Strait, uh, which lies in Oman's waters in terms of the exit from the region and the entrance to the region. It's not in Iran's uh, waters. This has long been a mistake on the part of uh, outsiders who just parrot uh, what they read from ill-informed or uh, other outside observers or those who have an agenda uh, to make the Arab side look insignificant or not very relevant or not to be trusted or not very reliable on top of not being very competent. These are the kinds of things that those in the GCC region have had to live with. And those who are trying to build this relationship have also had to live with. Uh, but during that conflict, uh, Oban was the chair of the United Nations Security Council at a time when the sanctions against uh, Iraq were extracting uh, an extraordinary humanitarian uh, price uh, cost uh, on the Iraqi people, especially Iraqi children. It was under Oman's leadership on behalf of the GCC countries, on behalf of Oman, on behalf of the world uh, to uh, enable humanitarian goods in terms of medicines and pharmaceuticals to be exempt from those sanctions into uh, Iraq. Uh, the fact that the United States put its flag on these tankers uh, sent a message to the world that the United States was committed to the ongoing governmental status quo in the region, and that war was brought to an end. Thirdly, uh, was the uh, Kuwait crisis. Um, uh, people in the West refer to it as Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but this is very much egocentric, uh, bordering on uh, arrogant-centric. Uh, because that's the American terminology of this uh, conflict in reversing the aggression against Kuwait. 
And uh, by the way, there were Omanis serving in Qatar's armed forces and with the Qataris in the Battle of Kafji, the final battle that reversed the aggression against Kuwait. And even though they wore the uniforms of uh, Qatar, uh, they were buried in Oman. So this underscores the interchangeability, the intermarriages, the overlapping interconnectivity of peoples and units and clans and tribes uh, amongst the uh, six GCC country uh, members there. That occasion, uh, more than 500,000 Americans and other allied forces coming to the region uh, to stand with uh, the founding member of the GCC uh, in terms of uh, Kuwait. So that was number uh, three. Number four has been more diffuse uh, and but no less uh, significant. Indeed, you could argue it's as significant, if not more significant than the others. And that is the cooperation between the GCC as an entity, as an international sub-regional organization on one hand and the individual GCC countries on the other, uh, prevented the export of Iran's revolution to the uh, western side of the Gulf. Uh, to my knowledge, Iran is the only country in the world that has as a part of its constitution, the not the uh, ideological agenda, but the moral, political, national, strategic imperative of exporting Iran's uh, revolution there. I remember speaking to uh, one of the foreign ministers of the six GCC countries who was uh, designated by the uh, other heads of state to go and speak with then Ayatollah Khomeini uh, about uh, stopping uh, the effort to uh, undermine and overthrow these governments. And this individual told me uh, that he had asked, how long will I have in my meeting with uh, uh, the supreme leader of uh, Iran. And I was told it would be 20 minutes max, uh, but I got only three minutes into my uh, remarks to the Ayatollah and he literally told me to shut up, that I was wasting his time, that it was too late, that all, uh, quoting now, all of you are going to get it. Uh, all of you are going to deserve what's going to happen to you. Well, it didn't happen, it hasn't happened. And a big reason is because of this GCC-US cooperation and commitment to the governmental status quo. And my final uh, uh, remark would be to continue to build this people-to-people -people side of the relationship. Um, it's not the healthiest of any country's bilateral relationships with another if the main component is military, is armed forces there. Uh, you just look at the US government's budget there and you can see the uh, misappropriation of more than a, uh, a trillion dollars for American defense if you add in the Department of, of uh, Energy's uh, uh, mindfulness of the US nuclear facilities there. More than a trillion dollars versus the paltry uh, budgetary sums that go to uh, Joey Hood, who you heard from earlier, and uh, Tib Linda King, who you've just heard from, and yesterday from David Rundell and others that you'll hear from, including General McKenzie tomorrow. 
uh, I will state it straight out because I'm not a diplomat, but I would say this is wrong. This is wrong-headed, wrong-minded, and, and the results are not going to be the positive, lasting, enduring ones that each side, each people uh, deserve. Uh, there are two free trade agreements between the United States and two GCC members. One is with Oman, the other is with Bahrain. Uh, there were efforts in the 1980s to discuss this kind of an agreement, as there had been with the European Union. Uh, but the ones with the European Union, which was more serious and longer and lasting, uh, came to an abrupt end in uh, December of 2008, uh, just before the inauguration of uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, I think it's in both sides' interest to renew uh, this as an item on the agenda. Uh, what has been a U.S.-Saudi Arabian strategic dialogue has now, of course, become a U.S.-GCC uh, country's uh, dialogue. Uh, and this needs to be uh, peopled by the best uh, diplomats and bureaucrats and civil servants that we have on both sides. And uh, the United States has the US GCC Corporate Cooperation Committee, which is housed here at the National Council on US Arab Relations. And we stand ready to be part of the conversations to explore these possibilities. But look what we've already achieved and accomplished. No one can say uh, we cannot do the difficult or even what people 30 years ago said would be the impossible. We have done it. We can do it again. We must do it again. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. John Diop. We can spend the whole day listening to uh, all this history and wisdom that you can uh, you bring into the discussions. Um, obviously, you're someone who knows the region and the history more than any uh, of us, and, and, and you know it from a different perspective. So I'm sure uh, not only us uh, at the panel, but also uh, the participants have, have learned a lot from this. And I think you echo your colleagues who spoke earlier about the need to work together and the fact that we have it within our hands, that we can, we can do it. And uh, it's a real shame that the GCC that used to work as a group and negotiate with uh, international uh, powers like the United States, like the European Union, it's now started to negotiate bilaterally, you know, country to country rather than collective uh, group. Hopefully that the GCC will come back to its old heydays when uh, we are all working together as, uh, as one unit and working also uh, uh, and collaborating with our, uh, our uh, international allies uh, and um, you know, in these strategic dialogues that, 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 that we have. And I have intentionally kept uh, Dr. Abdullah Shaiji, Professor Shaiji waiting because I know he has a lot of insights and different views perhaps from the region uh, and, and, and someone who writes uh, about these issues uh, and has got a lot of insights. And I thought that I will uh, br uh, bring him later in, into the discussions 
so that he can uh, also comment on some of the things that have been said and, and also give us his own uh, input. So uh, the next speaker is Dr. Abdullah Shaiji, who is a Kuwait University Professor of International Relations. And he is a, a postgraduate political science program director, as well as a good friend. Uh, Dr. Shaiji, the floor is yours. You can unmute yourself, Dr. Shaiji. Has he left us? Thank you. Uh, thank you, my friend, uh, Abdullah, for uh, uh, sharing this uh, very distinguished and insightful panel. Uh, thank you, Jean Duke, as usual. This is the, probably my 12th uh, uh, year in participating in your annual uh, uh, pilgrim on, the, on uh, our region. I thank also Pat and all the uh, staff at the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. I'm delighted to be among the distinguished panels. Uh, I know all, almost all of them we have met. And uh, uh, the year 2020, in my opinion, will be uh, uh, for a very long time remembered uh, as being a transformational year, not only in terms of uh, the uh, ravaging uh, catastrophic uh, uh, results of the COVID-19, but for its indelible marks that is leaving uh, all over the world uh, and in particular in our region. Uh, there are a lot of expectations. Uh, we have been really uh, dealt a major blow in terms of the consequences of this uh, pandemic. Uh, also, we have witnessed the uh, departure and the passing away of two founding members of uh, the uh, founding fathers, if you will, of the GCC, the late uh, Sultan Qaboos of Oman and the late uh, Amir of Kuwait, uh, Sheikh Subah Al-Ahmed. Uh, God bless their souls and uh, may they rest in peace. We've witnessed also the uh, change of four uh, GCC foreign ministers, which is uh, uh, unheard of. Uh, in this region, uh, in the Saudi Arabia, and uh, Kuwait, and uh, Oman, and Bahrain. We have a new four fresh foreign ministers. Uh, we also witnessed uh, the same Cold War mentality that is prevailing uh, between the GCC and Iran. We are in the fourth year of the GCC rift that is really unhelpful and it's really uh, damaging the, the, the GCC uh, unified position. Uh, the Kuwaiti uh, mediation efforts, although it has succeeded in preventing uh, some kind of escalation into a worse scenario, as late uh, Kuwaiti late Amir Sheikh Subah Al-Ahmed stated uh, in the first press conference with President Trump back in September 2017, uh, but it has not really resolved the, this crisis that is uh, really damaging the GCC as, a, as, as a, since 2011 at least, we've been arguing that uh, GCC is the only uh, uh, strong part of the Arab body that is really frail and uh, disjointed uh, after the uh, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, uh, the major powers in the uh, uh, Arab East 
collapsed into the Arab Spring or Iraq even before that. So the GCC was left to be the de facto leader of the uh, Arab political system, if you will. But then we have the GCC crisis and the rift that is really uh, uh, relegated us to the same old uh, Arab disease of disunity and fragmentation. Uh, the, uh, the last 20 years or so, I, I would argue uh, in my writings, uh, we have really been paying heavy price for United States uh, adventures uh, and uh, miscalculations uh, in the region. Uh, if you will, I, I will dare to say blunders even. Uh, from the uh, needless wars launched by President Bush 41 uh, under the, the slogan of a global war on terrorism uh, in Afghanistan, which is the longest war in the United States history. Now it's in 20th uh, year. Uh, and there is no end in sight. President Trump wants to bring the, the boys home for Christmas. They just announced they will reduce the numbers to 2,500 and the military uh, brass is not happy with it. It seems even uh, Mitch McConnell was very critical of President Trump. That's very ironic. Uh, and from Iraq and from Syria. And this really uh, plays into the point of the, what I call the trust deficit the trust deficit between the United States and the Arab countries, the Arab allies uh, in the region that will look at the United States with the retrenchment approach, with pulling uh, the troops back, drawdown of the troops in a very critical time. And that really keeps the GCC leadership and other countries wondering how much could we rely on the United States if push comes to shove. Uh, we saw what happened to the Kurds uh, a couple of years ago when President Trump decided to pull out the troops from Syria, then he changed his mind. We saw also the war on Iraq that is really has played into the hands of Iran. Iran became a hegemonic power in the region and that really uh, heated up the Cold War, especially after the Saudis and Bahrainis pulled out their ambassadors and severed their ties and uh, the region was really spiraling out of control. Then President Trump did nothing when the Iranian and their proxies uh, launched a major attack uh, of proportional, uh, of, of, of a huge proportional uh, severity by attacking the Aramco uh, oil installations in Abgeg and Khreis in the Eastern province of Saudi Arabia <clears throat> on uh, the 14th of September, 2019 and did nothing except sending troops and sending more Patriot missiles, but that will not deter Iran from, you know, playing a major role in destabilizing uh, the region. And then now we have just uh, last Thursday, according to New York Times, President Trump was asking for options to launch, uh, to bomb Iran or Iranian nuclear sites in the trans and this could really uh, bring the region into a major, major uh, showdown. The year started also the assassination of uh, Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the uh, Quds uh, Brigade. And that really, uh, the, uh, the Iranians retaliated by bombing uh, an American base, host, uh, the Iraqi base, uh, there were American troops injured some people with the, with the 
traumatic brain shocks and what have so what we're seeing now is a dynamic of of of, of lack of comprehensive policy that we are looking forward or, or some leaders in the region are looking forward with apprehension in my opinion what would change with the uh, with the biden administration this is this is the one million dollar question now in everybody's mind how would a biden administration incoming biden administration will deal with the host of these challenges uh, that really is is not helping the region from getting its act together and uh, the argument is that we need a, a functional gcc not dysfunctional gcc and United States leadership has been absent in playing a major role in supporting the Kuwaiti mediation efforts that has been ongoing and still continue to be ongoing uh, in order to have a, some kind of normalcy, back to normalcy. President Obama and President Trump suggested a very, very uh, strategic uh, project, which is MESA. Middle East Strategic Alliance. Uh, it sounds good on paper, on theory, which will have the GCC, the six countries on the, of the GCC, uh, plus Egypt and Jordan. But there was no meat on these bonds. The Egyptians said, no, it's a non-starter for us. Then how could you have a, a, a strategic alliance among uh, members that are uh, are fighting among each other, and there are uh, the GCC crisis is also looming large, uh, and was not, you need to resolve the GCC crisis before you start talking about a GCC alliance along with Egypt and uh, Jordan to counter Iran and also to have a comprehensive and unified strategy in dealing with the terrorist organizations, Daesh, Al-Qaeda, and uh, Houthis, uh, uh, maybe in the Hajj al-Shaabi in the future. But this really went nowhere, and we're back to square zero, un unfortunately. The issues that really now need to be addressed is United States to practice its leadership. We heard from uh, Robert uh, O'Brien a couple of days ago, a, a very uh, uh, positive remarks, uh, but we judge actions, not words, that United States is really interested in seeing the GCC rift ends. It's bent on too long. And that this is a great uh, approach. But then the, the next day, it was shut down by the UAE ambassador in, in Washington, uh, the influential ambassador in Washington, Yusuf Al-Utayba, who stated very clearly in a very contradictory manner that resolving the Qatari issue is not on everybody, is not a priority for everybody in, uh, in the region or, or elsewhere. And that was really shocking. If it's not a priority for United States, why would uh, Robert O'Brien would argue that now is the time to resolve this issue? So this dichotomy and this, uh, this contradictory approaches by UAE on one hand and by the, the Americans on the other hand and not really embracing the Kuwaiti mediation effort is really not helpful for United States allies to be in this uh, quandary. And there has to be probably the Biden administration should really focus. I know the Biden administration, the first hundred days has no time to think about any issue except healing United States from COVID, from the 
from the cleavages, from the uh, social, racial tensions. Uh, he has his hands full, uh, President, incoming President Biden or President-elect Biden, if he could resolve the dispute with President Trump over the uh, disputed elections that everybody now clearly sees that Biden is the next president except Trump and his camp. And just uh, uh, half an hour ago, Biden uh, exceeded the 79 million mark uh, in popular vote. So I, what I would argue, I don't, have, I don't know how much time I have left, is that first of all, United States has to be, uh, GCC has to be unified, has to be functional. The host of challenges uh, and impediments facing us are really severe. Uh, we all face a major de budget def deficit. The price of oil is really going down. Uh, the uh, COVID uh, uh, treatments and, and uh, dealing with COVID consequences is very, very costly and very devastating. Uh, the issue is how could the incoming Biden administration would allay the fear of the GCC leadership and people and academic like us uh, of the engagement issue. There is a disengagement. Is it an aberration what Obama and Trump did? Obama, like behind our backs, struck a deal with the Iranians, joint comprehensive plan of action. But what I give, but I give Obama administration credit for institutionalizing the, the, the US uh, GCC relationship. The United States has dealt with the GCC on a bilateral basis since the inception of the GCC back in 1981 until 2015. In 2015, President Obama, for his credit, uh, started an annual uh, summit, GC, US-GCC summit. The first one was held in Camp David, uh, just a couple of months before the signing of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in July 2015. Then it was the, next, the year after in Riyadh, the last visit by President Obama. The second summit was a GCC-US summit. The third summit was held in also Riyadh, first visit, first inaugural visit by President Trump outside the United States was to Saudi Arabia, and that was very peculiar. And since then, since 2017, May 2017, we have not had any GCC-US summit, and that was much needed to resolve the GCC crisis. So I hope uh, that the what uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Link, uh, Linder King talked about the uh, the rounds of strategic dialogue, uh, the fourth one with Kuwait, the third one with Qatar, and the second one or the first one with Saudi Arabia, was not a replacement of the uh, the annual GCC US uh, summit, but it will build on because there is a much needed uh, assurance by United States to its GCC allies in times, in dire times, in my opinion, uh, to reassure GCC uh, allies that United States is not only uh, here to protect and to help, and America first doesn't mean America alone, uh, but America is here. The disengagement is not as you think it is. It's, it's overblown. A pivot toward Asia and the priority for Russia and China and to counter them is not, does not mean that we're going to disengage from the region. Uh, the issue of uh, GCC-US relationship is in, in the mind of everybody here. 
the other issue is that the revisit of joint comprehensive plan of action as uh, president-elect of Biden stated that he will offer Iran a, a reasonable path to a diplomatic process, which means he is thinking of re-engaging Iran over a new nuclear uh, deal, uh, maybe uh, joint, joint comprehensive plan of action 2.0. And I would urge the GCC, the GCC leadership to have a, a place on that table. There has to be an involvement by the GCC. I was probably one of the few ones who argued back in 2014 when we found out that there was a secret negotiations between the US administration, Obama administration, and Iran in Oman of all places, uh, that there has to be five plus one plus one, uh, the permanent five members plus Germany, and plus a seat for the GCC, because we're going to have the, the, the carry the brunt of any Iranian shenanigans, or as we see, it has to be also included Iranian behavior, Iranian dominant hegemonic project that will not undermine the security and, and, and the stability of the GCC allies. There has to be dealt also with Houthis. I wonder why United States will not uh, declare and classify the Houthis as a terrorist organization. Why would it would United States not do that? I don't understand. I believe Biden administration will not be very hospitable to the, to the war in, uh, in Yemen. It will probably uh, re renegotiate its approach with Saudi Arabia. It will also maybe stop the logistic and intelligence and uh, other support in the war in Saudi Arabia. Regarding human rights, I think it will be front and center, unlike with the Trump administration. I think the uh, United States also will play uh, if time permits, after dealing with host of uh, domestic and foreign issues, play a major role regarding the normalization. The normalization that is really is, is being carried away now, split the GCC countries. We see now only, only UAE uh, and uh, Bahrain. And today was a historic day in a very shocking way, in my opinion, to see the Bahraini foreign minister in Jerusalem with the uh, Israeli Prime Minister and uh, U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo, but you have really, you, if all Arab countries would normalize with Israel, if you not resolve the Palestinian issue, you have not done nothing. You have really to deal with two-state solution. You cannot normalize with Israel and say, oh, we adhere to this two-state solution, because you are flipping the formula on its head. The Arab summit back in 2002 in Beirut, for the first time, the Arabs agreed on a comprehensive peace plan, peace for, uh, for land or land for peace. You withdraw from Israel, withdraws from all the occupied Arab territories, including East Jerusalem, including Golan Heights, including West Bank, including uh, some farms in Southern Lebanon, and all Arabs would normalize relations with Israel. And the Palestinians will have the, their, their state solution, uh, their state with the Jerusalem, East Jerusalem as its capital. Thank you very much. What's going on is now adhering to Netanyahu's formula, which is peace for peace. You normalize with me, I normalize with you. If you do not solve, resolve the Palestinian issue once and for all in a very comprehensive and just manner, I think what we are seeing 
is, is, is a peace process that without tangible and, and, and very, very needed results because this will resolve many other issues that's still hanging. We see that, uh, I mean, you have to go back to also uh, to uh, the Onorwa that President Trump cut off all aids from. You have to engage with the Palestinians with the hope of two-state solution, the refugees, the borders. So maybe we are asking too much from a Biden administration that is gonna be bogged down with too much troubles and too much issues and fragmentation and even legitimacy. I mean, 70% of the Republicans believe that the President Biden did not win the election. I mean, this president will have legitimacy issue and this really gives the United States a bad image all over the world. The United States was the beacon or is the beacon still in my opinion of hope and of freedom and democracy and human rights. We see United States now mimicking with President Trump tweets and tantrum, mimicking a, a despotic uh, regimes like Lukashenko and uh, refusing to adhere to the elections or, 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 or forge his elections to stay in power. This is really something, 2020 has not ended yet and we saw so, so much uh, exciting issues. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, yes. Dr. Abdullah. Um, um, we, uh, we're trying to kind of uh, keep to the time, but uh, I know you've got a lot of points to, to raise, and that's why we kept you to, towards the end, because I know that you will respond to some of the points that were raised earlier. Uh, I think now we are going to have the final say uh, with, uh, uh, and the final uh, contribution uh, and last but not least by Ambassador retired Susan Ziada, who was a former uh, US Department of State Bureau of uh, Near Eastern Affairs, a Deputy Assistant Secretary, and was former United States Ambassador to Qatar, as well as Middle East Institute Board of Governors uh, member. And uh, Ambassador Ziada, I am sure you know uh, you you heard everybody, but we want to hear also from your perspective. How does how where is the future? Where are we going uh, with this? We've talked about the past, we talked about the present, but we are now moving towards the future and the future of the generations that have been talked about earlier. How do you see this relationship going on? Maybe you can enlighten us on that if you like. The floor is yours. Thank you, Dr. Abdullah, and uh, may I say how delighted I am to be with all of my esteemed colleagues and, and people I consider very good friends. So it's a welcome, welcome opportunity. Thank you. Uh, I was asked to, to address the issue of the incoming Biden administration and potential relations with the GCC and what that's going to look like. And I want to thank my colleague, Dr. Abdullah Shaiji, who um, actually delivered some of my points and it's always interesting and I appreciate that because he, he uh, Dr. Abdullah of course is so well esteemed as a scholar but also sitting in the region. I'm sitting in Washington and how I see things. So it's always very interesting to see the complementarity of views from across the pond uh, sitting in Kuwait in the GCC and being here in the United States. So I, I thank him for that. And so we'll start off from that Point. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for the concern about U.S. Uh, retrenchment, disengagement, are we pivoting to Asia? This is always a big topic and concern for the GCC countries. 
But I would, I would posit that overall the posture of the new administration uh, and President-elect Biden's administration, that relation, you know, relations will continue as they have for quite a bit of time. I'm not saying that there won't be some changes. I think it will not be as transactional in nature, relations between uh, the US and, uh, and the GCC countries as it was under the Trump administration. Uh, but I don't think it will be a disengagement uh, because we have great concern about great power competition in the region, uh, rising China, uh, uh, Russian um, uh, engagement, specifically in the GCC on energy issues, but of course, Russian uh, engagement in other countries like in Syria, et cetera, which are of great concern to the GCC. Uh, when people talk about uh, the fact that, well, is the US security umbrella going to be there? I would point to our military posture in the region. There's a lot of talk about the fact that we might uh, draw down and, and indeed President Trump did make the statement about drawing down in Iraq and in Afghanistan. But still, uh, in the whole, what we call area of responsibility of central command, we have about 30, 35,000 military um, uh, military, U.S. military deployed in the region, and that will stay uh, for the foreseeable future as, as I see it, uh, in terms of securing regional stability and security. I think that under a Biden administration, uh, we will look to GCC countries for more participation in regional security requirements. Uh, and in that sense, it's burden sharing in the broadest sense. In other words, it won't simply be burden sharing um, financially, but also in terms of deployment of military, uh, joint training, joint operations, uh, et cetera. And we do spend as the US a lot of time and effort in developing those relationships with the militaries uh, of the region. And I can foresee that going forward with even greater um, uh, greater um, uh, depth. So let's look at a few. I thought we'd look at maybe a couple of issues, two, three issues that the Biden administration has already indicated they will be looking at and how they might be at least approaching their tasks. What are some of the issues at hand? What might be some of the roadblocks? So we can see what they're going to be up against and how the GCC countries should be thinking about how they engage with the Biden administration on these issues. I think first and foremost is the issue of Iran as, as Dr. Sheji pointed to and other speakers uh, before him. Uh, and in particular, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and what that's going to mean. The United States under the Trump administration walked back uh, and, and disassociated itself with the JCPOA. And as a result, we have seen Iran uh, increasing their, um, their uh, development uh, on the uranium front. And we know that our alliances, the United States alliances with the Europeans and others of the P5 plus one have been shaken by the fact that we withdrew. So it seems that the first thing that Biden administration is gonna to have to do is shore up relations with our allies in Europe. This is job one. And, and the Biden um, you know, transition team has already indicated that this will be the first thing they do. Not simply for the issue of Iran, obviously there's NATO, there are all the transatlantic issues, 
but in the terms of the JCPOA, uh, the Europeans uh, do play a disproportionate role in the P5 plus one. If we look at Iran, it's unclear who's going to be in charge of the nuclear file in Tehran. We know that the hardliners are ascendant. We know that even President Rouhani's statements recently have been more uh, hardline, and certainly more so than Foreign Minister Zarif, although he issued a statement, I think, yesterday, saying that President uh, Biden will need to use executive orders to turn back three major decisions before we can even move forward. We know that the Iranian presidential elections are taking place in, in June of 2021. So will Iran wait till after the election result to even consider uh, a revised JCPOA? What will be the results of those elections and who will be in charge of the actual file? Will it be the foreign ministry or will it go to uh, other uh, elements that are more hardline? Uh, Dr. El-Sheji raised the issue of GCC interests and how they will be factored in. Will the GCC insist on having a seat at the table, a P5 plus one plus one, like he said? We do know that when you live in the neighborhood, you're very concerned to make sure your views are heard. What will that mean in terms of how the US approaches this? And even more interestingly, Will there be a, a unified view within the GCC of what a joint uh, GCC position actually looks like vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a resurrected JCPOA? I think there will be additional things to look at in the resurrected JCPOA if it does go forward and there is agreement. For example, uh, are there going to be focus on the Iranian uh, ballistic missiles? What about the sunset clauses that uh, were in the previous agreement? Will there be a focus on Iran's expanding interventionist behavior in the region? Will those things be tackled? Will Iran agree to tackle those things? Will it be a two-part process? Will it even be on the table? So these are all issues that the Biden administration in consultation with its partners and allies will have to be looking at in terms of Iran. Let's turn briefly to the issue of Yemen because of the war and the humanitarian crisis there. The Biden administration uh, will be looking at the issue of Yemen and certainly the Saudi uh, intervention that uh, what began in March of 2015, quote unquote, as a short-term intervention that's now ongoing for four years with no resolution in sight. Uh, now, yesterday, Reuters uh, news agency reported uh, about discussions. They have not been confirmed by either side, but reportedly discussions between Saudi Arabia and the Houthi movement, saying that Saudi Arabia would sign a UN-sponsored ceasefire if the Houthi group agreed to a buffer zone along the kingdom's border. Now, this was an interesting uh, rumor. There have been rumors in the past. We don't know if it's true. But the fact is that if there is movement on this issue, in other words, the Saudis looking to secure their border, which was, after all, the reason that Saudi Arabia went in in the first place when the Houthis overthrew the, uh, the legitimate government in Sana'a, and when they started lobbing um, missiles uh, over the border into Saudi Arabia, 
of course, that constituted an act of war and uh, they took actions as a result. But even if the Saudis halt their intervention, even if there is a ceasefire along the northern border, which of course would help quiet things along the border, what does that mean in terms of the internal Yemeni civil war and how to convince the Houthis to come to the negotiating table and negotiate in earnest? As um, my good colleague, Tim Lenderking mentioned, the Houthis have a place in the table and their place at the table is codified in uh, all of the documentation that, are, that the uh, Yemeni government would uphold in terms of negotiations going forward, whether it's 2216 of the United Nations or the internal documents that were being worked out before the war started. But then you have to look at the other issues. Will there be a unified Yemen? Will the Southern Transitional Council uh, re-engage on the issue of a unified Yemen? Uh, will Yemen devolve into separate areas with different spheres of influence? The Saudis dealing with the northern border. The fact that uh, the UAE has uh, relations with the Southern Transitional Council in Aden. What about Omani concerns about uh, Saudi and other military presence in the adjoining Mahara region? All of these issues look for a more unified uh, GCC understanding of what a, a drawdown and a peace negotiation in Yemen uh, should look like. Now, recently we saw reference, uh, references, and I think Dr. Abdullah mentioned this, discussions in Washington about possibly designating the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, uh, that may be uh, a, a, a designation that some people would applaud. But then there would be those who would say, how would this undermine the United Nations envoys uh, Griffiths, Martin Griffiths efforts to bring about a negotiated settlement? And second, the fact that if these, um, if the Houthis are designated as an FTO, that would in essence block NGOs, non-governmental organizations from distributing badly needed humanitarian assistance uh, to large areas of Yemen that are currently under Houthi control. And these are areas of Yemeni civilian populations, some of whom might be aligned with the Houthis, some of whom will not, but they happen to be living in Yemeni controlled areas. So the question is, is this an attempt to uh, hamstring the Biden administration as it goes forward in trying to come to a negotiated settlement on this issue. So there are a lot of uh, um, issues that need to be resolved even within the Biden administration as they look at the Yemen issue. And the third thing, and I'll go through this briefly, um, of course, the Gulf Rift and everyone has raised this and everyone raises it because it is a major issue regardless of uh, the fact that uh, the National Security Advisor raised this issue and that this is important and the response of the UAE uh, ambassador was, well, it's not on anybody's um, program at the moment. The fact is that in order for the US to have a more integrated relationship with the region, it's important that it not be simply on a bilateral basis, but on a more unified, cooperative, integrated basis. And of course, that also is helpful 
from the US perspective and in avoiding any openings that could be there for Iran or Turkey or other actors uh, to be able to uh, uh, engage and, and involve themselves. And this is particularly poor, uh, important if the JCPOA 2.0 talks are to go forward to have a more unified GCC position. Now, if we just look at a few of the countries uh, of the GCC going forward and their relations uh, as we think they might be with the Biden administration, I would just say the following. Uh, the Biden administration will obviously have uh, important relations with Saudi Arabia. That is not going to change. But I think there is a concern within the Biden administration and within the Congress on the issue of the role that uh, Saudi Arabia has played in Yemen. And of course, uh, the long lingering uh, questions about the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And uh, there is no question that there are certain steps that a country like Saudi Arabia potentially could do that would at least be welcomed by a Biden administration. One would be taking steps to try and uh, end the rift or at least ameliorate the tensions and tamp down the temperature on the rift uh, with uh, Qatar. I think the US would welcome that and that uh, step, which would be at least uh, more welcomed if not only tolerated by Saudi public opinion is one that Saudi Arabia uh, could take. I think the UAE is probably in a stronger position vis-a-vis -vis the Biden administration at the moment uh, because they're not uh, directly involved militarily in the Yemen civil war. And they have signed the Abraham uh, Accords with Israel, which uh, is viewed positively uh, across the board in the United States. Uh, I personally don't see uh, the UAE taking any steps at the moment to uh, resolve the Gulf Rift as uh, Ambassador Oteba has uh, actually stated. Uh, their relations with the Hill uh, is, is in pretty good strength right now, certainly stronger than uh, Saudi Arabia's relations with the Hill. But I think even the UAE's relations will now be tested with the proposed sale of the F-35s and how, uh, despite the fact that the Israelis have sort of signaled QME uh, acceptance of that, the fact that um, there will be concerns in, in Congress about the F-35 technology, which will be with the UAE and export controls issue. And the fact that the UAE has relations militarily with other countries whereby this technology could come under question. I think Bahrain is similarly in a good position with the United States going forward, uh, given their um, normalization with Israel and particularly the visit of the foreign minister today. And as far as the other three uh, GCC countries, I think the Omanis will see a more stepped up engagement with the new administration, uh, particularly if there are uh, efforts to uh, revitalize the uh, JCPOA. The Omanis were extremely helpful in that regard. And the Omanis have been helpful uh, in particular with humanitarian issues involving US personnel in Yemen, which the US government uh, has appreciated. Qatar, uh, of course, as a base uh, and the relationships they have on a whole host of issues in support of our security uh, objectives. And Kuwait also hosting military, but a longer 
broad range of issues, particularly their mediation role in the region. I think in terms of issues that the uh, Biden administration should focus on from a policy perspective, Dr. Abdullah, to speak to your uh, request, uh, ending the Gulf Rift, I think should be one of the issues up there. Uh, Dr. Abdullah mentioned uh, the summits and the need for US GCC committees. Uh, I know that that was something that uh, not just the summit, but a whole host of committee work on a broad range of about six areas of cooperation that I personally worked on uh, from uh, 2015 into 2016 um, on the issue till the end of the Obama administration on the issue of looking for unified ways to bring about cooperation with GCC on a whole host of issues. And last but not least, I think uh, this administration, incoming administration will take a, a tougher stance uh, and make a greater push on human rights and democracy, governance, uh, rule of law, and building on people-people uh, linkages in a way to broaden the relationship away from simple uh, military engagement and security and to, uh, and to assure the fact that American uh, values uh, are, are upheld, not only in the United States, but around the world. So it's a tall order. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was really um, helpful uh, to hear some specific uh, policy advice of how we, we go forward from, from here. Um, the, the topic itself is very, very uh, interesting. We could have spent uh, the whole day talking about different issues, but I have been uh, sent a message that we have to uh, end soon. I don't know if we have like one or two questions that I can ask you, uh, if I may, and I'll be very quick on this. With the Biden administration uh, coming uh, uh, at some point in time, hopefully, um, what do you, where do you think is the pecking order um, of the region within its priorities? Uh, the Biden administration will have a lot of uh, other pressing priorities, whether it's internally or uh, with its relationship with its more, uh, if you like, uh, allies, where is the Gulf or the Middle East going to come in that pecking order? And what's going to attract the, uh, the, the, the new US administration to uh, look seriously at the Gulf, whether it's the GCPOA, whether it's the Gulf conflict, the Yemen war, what's going to push them towards that? So that's one question I want to uh, uh, raise and, 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 and put that to, to you. And anyone who wants to answer uh, can, can do so. I have uh, another question that was, uh, was posted by uh, one of the uh, participants, or sorry, one of the listeners, and, uh, and it's specific specifically uh, addressed to His Excellency uh, Dr. Mohammed Al-Hassan, and it's about Oman roles in Yemen. And you know, what interest does Oman have in Yemen? And, and, and you know, how do you answer to this allegation that Oman supports uh, the Yemeni, uh, the Houthis, to um, um, uh, you know, through uh, supplies of arms uh, uh, through the borders. Uh, this this question keeps rising, and I think it needs to be uh, addressed uh, uh, at some point. And I think His Excellency 
uh, is the best person to address it here. I have another question for Dr. Shaiji, if I may. And that is, if you uh, uh, designate the Houthis as, uh, 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 as a terrorist organization, and we've just had the Brotherhood designated as a terrorist organization, and we've had other groups designated, who's going to be left who's not designated in the region who's not a terrorist organization? Can't we have more inclusive and accept people as they are? And we're talking about the future, the future of generations. The Houthis made mistakes as did others. So can we not move beyond that and stop labeling people and start to think, you know, the Houthis is a, an important element and they have to be talked to as well as others. Uh, uh, the Brotherhood, whoever is, uh, 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 you know, as a political party, whatever means they have done, we can't keep doing this. Can't we move beyond that? Um, um, I think, um, Maybe I stop here and then we'll see if we can have another round of question. But it's all uh, for you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to, to answer. And maybe we start with uh, Susan. She was the last speaker, so we can uh, ask her to comment on any of these points, if you like. Thank you. Uh, I'll just comment on the first question in terms of where the Middle East will come on the policy priorities. I mean, obviously, it's hard to know because Right now, a new administration is going to be faced with the domestic issues of COVID, uh, the economy, uh, race relations, um, uh, so many other governance even uh, in, in terms of the United States as something that we never thought would be challenged, but we're, we're, we're watching it in real time. Uh, I think in terms of foreign policy, uh, the, the Biden administration's first steps will be to reshore the European alliances and the transatlantic relationship, making sure that NATO is stable, making sure that we are working in consort with our uh, time-honored allies um, across the board. I think there will also be much more intense uh, scrutiny on the issue of China uh, it, it, you know, obviously its impact on our trade relations, on the farmers in the Midwest, uh, all of the issues that we know, and, and, and uh, Russian, um, Russian uh, expansion into areas, including the Middle East, but also uh, Eastern Europe, where the influence, you know, we haven't heard Ukraine recently, but really that issue has not gone away. That said, I would just point to the fact that we do have our military posture there, as Tim Blender King eloquently uh, pointed to, the ongoing strategic dialogues with the countries of the region. We have uh, issues uh, that will continue to consume the Biden administration in terms of Yemen, uh, Iran, uh, settling, uh, you know, dealing with actually counterterrorism and transnational actors. Nobody raise the issue of things like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, but these are still big, important counterterrorism issues and those kinds of cooperations with uh, countries in the region and our own military footprint will continue to go forward. So I wouldn't say that uh, the Biden administration is gonna be looking at uh, very specific uh, policies with regards to like the Israeli-Palestinian issue or how we move forward on other issues uh, in the very near term, but obviously they will go forward. And the last thing I would say on this, we have to wait and see who's going to be appointed to Secretary of State, who are the appointments, and why do I say that? 
because uh, personnel is policy, as we know. And I think that that will also shape not the policies per se, but perhaps some of the uh, order in which some of these issues are addressed. Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Shaiji, uh, we're going in this order, if you like, backward. Yeah, thank you, Abdullah. Very, very challenging uh, questions you asked. Uh, two points. First point, I think uh, President, incoming President Biden uh, administration will have its hands more than full with domestic uh, issues, healing and dealing with the uh, legacy of President Trump uh, in terms of many issues uh, domestically. But when it comes to foreign, uh, foreign policy issues, I think the priority is Russia, China, the Europeans, NATO. And then when it comes to our region, it's going to be two things, Israel and the Middle East peace process or what's left of it. Normalization will not be on top of the agenda. Iran will come really uh, top of the agenda and when it comes to the region. Uh, Re-engaging uh, John Comprehensive Plan of Action 2.0 could be one of the major uh, issues that they will be dealing with. And then the other issues, GCC unity is very important for a, a strategic approach, a unified approach for the host of challenges that's facing the region. Yemen, I mean, I think Trump is what he's doing. He's trying to box in Biden before he comes by, uh, by uh, pulling out a troop, draw down troops from Afghanistan, from Iraq, by uh, uh, selling the the UAE F-35, but designating the Houthis, uh, designating the Houthis as a terrorist organization, I think uh, could be one of the uh, uh, President Trump approaches to may maybe hamstring the, uh, the the incoming Biden administration uh, in dealing. But I mean, you mixed apples and oranges, Abdullah, by saying that uh, equating the Houthis or designating Houthis as uh, uh, foreign uh, terrorist organization with the Ikhwan al-Muslimin is just uh, stretching it too much. I mean, the, the, these the Houthis have uh, carried out a, a coup d'etat against a legitimate regime in, uh, uh, in Yemen, and they have been engaged in, 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 in attacking civilian areas, civilian targets. So you cannot compare Ikhwan al-Muslimin with the Houthis who are a proxy, Iranian proxy in uh, any way. And Iran is really uh, dealing with Saudi Arabia through a proxy war in Yemen by the Houthis. So, I mean, we cannot mix up Ikhwan with the Houthis, but this is a message that sh should have been sent long time ago. I agree with uh, Susan, what she stated. Yeah, this would really uh, curtail the, the, the uh, dealing with the humanitarian uh, aid that will go into the Houthi-controlled uh, regions in Sana and in the other regions, but then what? I mean, you need a game-changing approach in order to end this mess and also uh, contain Iranian ambitions and deal with Iranian hegemonic uh, project. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shaiji. <laughs> Dr. John Duke. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Abdullah. I think um, going back to your question, can we not move beyond this uh, mindset of uh, shunning uh, people as though they are lepers or have some contagious uh, political or ideological uh, disease. Um, if you want to resolve uh, these issues of conflict, 
there's no uh, statesman or strategic-like approach that makes any sense to me unless you have a communications line uh, to the people who have either begun that conflict or who are sustaining it. Uh, to say, oh, no, no, it's the opposite is uh, BS. Uh, look at uh, Vietnam, for example. Uh, the United States pushed and pushed and pushed Hanoi uh, and the Viet Cong to recognize the Republic of South Vietnam as a condition for the U.S. Um, uh, withdrawal in ending the conflict. Uh, Hanoi refused, the Viet Cong refused, and we were left with no choice, a strategic objective being to get out of the war and to have peace and security and stability in the region, but to speak with them. And we did for months on end in Paris uh, uh, with uh, Hanoi's representatives and the Viet Cong, both of them together. And had we not done so, there would be more than the 58,000 names of Americans who were killed in Vietnam on a memorial in the center of Washington, D.C. There would be more than the 1.3 billion uh, Vietnamese who died in that conflict. Uh, similarly, Algeria. Uh, uh, one French government after the other demanded of the Liberation Front, you must recognize the rights of, of the French uh, one million citizens in Algeria and to uh, have them exempt or immune from your nationalistic aspirations to be sovereign and independent. The FLN said no, no, no. As it was at independence, uh, one out of 8.5 Algerians was an orphan. Uh, so uh, that war would have continued if uh, uh, the de Gaulle government had not uh, gone directly with the FLN. Same thing with the British in Rhodesia uh, and with Ian Smith uh, representing uh, Rhodesia and uh, there. The US and uh, the British both pressed him to deal with the nationalists, the guerrillas. And he said, no, 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 but they're terrorists. And we said, do it anyway. And he did it anyway, and the conflict stopped. You can go back to the American uh, emergence as a nationally sovereign country. It was only when the British agreed to stop the fighting, stop resisting the legitimate uh, rebellion. Uh, October the 18th, uh, 1781, Yorktown, Virginia, that it stopped. So the, and I could give you other examples, same thing in Yemen next door. Uh, the, the British uh, and others did not want to deal with the uh, National Liberation Front there, the Jabhat. Uh, but in the end, they, they did. And when they did, it stopped. Those are five examples we can go on and on. Uh, so I'm with you on let's go beyond uh, painting as lepers, uh, those who have ideological inclinations that we find not only distasteful, but uh, dangerous and unacceptable. Uh, you want peace? Be serious about it. You want a region to be secure? Be serious about it. You want to have security, stability, peace, and uh, prospects for prosperity? Be serious about it. Thank you, John. Do you, I, I, we're going to change the order slightly, if we may, uh, and because I, I believe that His Excellency uh, Mohammed Al Hassan is, has to go, has to leave us. So. 
maybe we start with him and then go to Tim, uh, Your Excellency. Do forgive us, Tim, please. Do forgive us, Tim, uh, as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, well, I'll answer the question that you have uh, posed uh, to ask me. What is Oman interest in Yemen? The answer to that is peace for Yemen and the region. Uh, regarding the allegation leveled at my country, I have not heard these allegations officially. They uh, circulate within some news. But let me just say one thing, that Oman, from day one of this war in Yemen, has refused to take part in this war. Despite false claims, allegations and at times intimidations we still refuse to be part in this war in Yemen we believe the Yemenis are capable with the help of the international community to settle out their differences my last words if you would allow me Dr. Abdullah I believe the destiny for the security and stability of the Gulf lies in the hands of the people of the Gulf. Yes, the United States has a role to play, other countries has a role to play. There are also new partners uh, to the Gulf, including China, including India. But at the end of the day, their future, their security is in their hands. And this cannot be given uh, just like that. And. Uh, uh, let me just uh, conclude by this word. We all are, all the Muslims are Muslim brothers. <laughs> so uh, uh, having to say this, uh, I don't believe when it comes to diplomacy that sometimes uh, putting uh, political groups uh, under the uh, terrorist list is the right way forward. It has pr produced catastrophic results. And uh, I believe that the international community, with the help of the United Nations representative to Yemen, uh, they're doing a good job. And hopefully soon we're going to come into an end to this crisis in Yemen. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you, Your Excellency. I believe you're going to leave us. So we want to thank you. Uh, if you stay, you're most welcome. We're finishing in one minute or so, uh, because I think pass on the time. Tim, it's all yours now. Thanks. Just two quick points. Um, on the first question of, of the Gulf, uh, you know, the Middle East priorities, I, I would just add that that we're going to find that in, in if we turn in any direction in the Middle East, you're going to need the Gulf countries. If you want to solve the Libya crisis, you got to work with UAE and Egypt, of course. If you want to solve Yemen, you got to work with Oman and Saudi Arabia. If you want to get, if we want to get Sudan back on its feet, uh, which it's you know recently normalized with Israel, it's off the terrorism list. They've got they're they're undergoing a very important transition here as well. So if we want to help Sudan out, Gulf countries are going to need to be part of it. And that's again where the rift is a problem because we don't want Qatar and the UAE just to pick two examples to be competing against each other for spheres of influence in some of these regional conflicts. So we need, the, we, we need the Gulf countries to be working together. And lastly, um, on the designation issue is a difficult one. 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about the designation of the Houthis. It is a raging debate here, and you can see it being played out. Some of you have mentioned the media articles. Very tough. I, I would simply say that, um, you know, we've we mentioned that the Houthis are a legitimate actor. Then lessen, lessen the ties with the Iranian regime. I think that would be a huge, um, a huge gesture. I know it's difficult. There are some uh, ties that are well entrenched there. And we know in some cases what motivates the Houthis to do that, but to lessen those ties and to demonstrate that they are an organization committed to Yemen for Yemenis, I think would be extremely well received in Washington. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Uh, this has been a very, very uh, interesting, insightful uh, debate. Uh, the topic is of course uh, very wide and we could have spent the whole day as I said, and we've only touched the surface uh, now, but I'm sure there will be other uh, events that, that can be, uh, this, these points can be deliberated. I want to thank you uh, myself for uh, your uh, insights, for your thoughts, for your ideas that you have brought to this uh, panel and this session. I want to also thank uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony for, uh, and the council, uh, the National Council for US-Arab Relations for uh, their great work that they have done. And in particular, I wanna thank all the team that works for him and they made this event successful as always. Uh, all their events have been extremely well organized. Congratulations to all of you for this wonderful work and uh, have a, a good day, all of you, uh, wherever you are, it's evening here. And uh, um, best of luck with the rest of the conference. I'm going to be following it. Thank you very much, all. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.